The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. The way that song ends is a reflection on the hunger of the believer's heart for the healing and grace that comes only from God. This morning, as we look to God's Word for our scripture reading, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 25, right in the midst of this lengthy oracle of judgment on Tyre and then on the entire world. We find in chapter 25 uh, this little oasis in the midst of judgment. It's the longing of the hearts of God's people of old uh, for the day when God is ultimately going to bring His healing and grace permanently. It's a longing that as believers today we share. Listen to uh, Isaiah as he writes, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, as we read the words of Isaiah, as we sing the words of the song we just sang, it is pressed upon our hearts the reality that in a way You have already saved us. In that we have run to You in confession of our sin and in repentance and we have we have pleaded the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope for a covering over our sin and for our eternal salvation. And you have granted us that. You have justified us. You have regenerated our dead souls and given us new life. And as we celebrate that and give thanks for that, we are also mindful that our salvation is not full and complete as it will be one day. Although we've received so much grace from you, There is much grace yet to come. 
But as we sit here this morning, we find ourselves still in the midst of a sinful and dying world. We still find ourselves in the battle against our flesh, which wages war against our soul. We still find ourselves susceptible to all the things in the world around us that rob us of our joy, that distract us from our pursuit of you, that bring pain and grief and hurt into our everyday experiences. And so as we find ourselves in that position this morning, just like Isaiah and his people of old, we wait for you. We long and we wait for that day when you will return. When you will establish on your holy mountain perfect peace for all your people. When death and pain and grief and sorrow is swallowed up and defeated forever. Never again to be experienced by your people. When you will make good on this prophecy to be the one who comes as a tender father and wipes away tears from all faces. We can't imagine what that will be like, but we long for it. We wait for it. And we look to that day as we will join with your people from all the ages to be able to say with glad hearts, this is the Lord. We have waited for Him. And He's come to save us. In the meantime, Lord, we struggle and we hurt. No doubt there are some who have come this morning with, with great anxieties on their hearts, with pain from even this week that's traveling with them in their soul. Uh, Lord, the people around them don't know, I don't know, but you're a God who knows all things. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know the depths of our hearts. And so we pray that by your Spirit you would minister to us in the place where we struggle this morning that you would help us to lay down the sins that so easily entangle us, that you would help us to look to you and find peace and comfort for our souls as we wait. It's our joy this morning, Lord, to gather around your word. It is for us a feast. And we've come with hungry hearts that need to be satisfied with you. So, God, with your all-sufficient word this morning, satisfy our hungry souls. We pray for our pastor Frank this morning as he stands to teach us and to deliver your word for us. Empower him, embolden him, strengthen him for the task ahead. Open our ears that we might hear. For we long for you this morning. Oh, God, our God. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Second Peter chapter two. Turn on your Bible or turn to your Bible. Fake news. I don't think I've heard the term fake news before the last year. The thing about fake news is it's relative. My fake news and your fake news might be different. In the eye of the beholder, I guess, in some cases. Now, there's some deliberate, obviously, fake news out there. Um, that's why I read the newspaper. Um, you can get a little more <clears throat> less fake in the newspaper, I think. For you, 
uh, millennials and younger, the newspaper is something they throw in your driveway every day, and you go out and get it out of a bag, and you have to you read it. Um, you actually sit down in a chair and read it. Uh, it's paper. Peter's addressing false teaching. Uh, the difference in that and fake news is that it's not relative. You can there's a, there's a standard that Peter's talking about here. We know what that standard is. It's the Word of God. And if you know the Word, you've studied it, you've read it, consulted it, then uh, you can you can find out what is false teaching and what isn't. And it can be pretty clear to you. But if you're not hungry for the Word of God, you're not hungering after the Word, uh, then you might have a problem with false teaching. Uh, you might fall for it, as some people fall for fake news. The problem with that, you can fall for fake news and keep on living. You fall for false teaching, it's deadly. And that's the truth. Nothing fake about that. We started last week. Last Sunday morning, I told Pastor Greg I was going to get through the first three verses of chapter 2, and I got through verse 1. Um, so that was fake news, Pastor Greg. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Let me give you a bit of an overview. He begins in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, he gives these three things about false teachers, uh, which we'll overview, we talked about. He, he, he begins that sentence with, but. Now, look at the, just look at the sentence before that, or the verse before that, chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also rose among you. Or you could go back to verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But false teachers, in verse 1, also arose. You could take any of those verses and then go to but false teachers and keep on going. False teachers arose among the people. The people is the New Testament term for the Jewish people, um, for Israel. That's those, those are the false prophets um, rising up to them. And we looked at uh, Old Testament examples of those false prophets. Uh, Israel was not short on false prophets. There were many, many of them. There were great true prophets, but there were a lot of false prophets. And then he says, just as there will be false teachers among you. He changed from false prophets to, from prophets to teachers uh, because the age is ending at that point and has ended for us. There aren't prophets anymore. They're just false teachers among you. He said, there will be false teachers among you. Uh, we don't quite understand why he uses that tense, but but um, <clears throat> but it could be 
we already know. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter already knows. Paul knew. We, we saw false teachers show up in Acts pretty soon with the creation of the church of Jesus Christ. False teachers popped up, and uh, they are there. We know they're there. Um, Peter's talking to a people in another land further away, and it could be they're, they're making their way to you, or there will be, or in your local church there will be, or in your local church there will be, or in your local church there will be false teachers among you. And what do they do? Well, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly is a key there. Their, their teachings are subtle. Sometimes not so subtle. We'll see an example in a minute. And deceptive teaching, subtle deceptive teaching for the biblically ignorant believer who wouldn't notice is very effective. Satan's a master deceiver. Sometimes it's not even that their teaching is secret. It's the deceptive nature of their uh, their teaching. Uh, of course, no false teacher, as I said, was, is going to just show up and say, Hi, I'm a false teacher. Listen to me. Pay attention. Do what I say. So it's deceptive. They teach destructive heresies, heresies of destruction, damnable heresies. And they're destructive not only to the one who falls for it, but they're destructive for the teacher as well. As he says at the end of that verse. These false teachers, he also says in verse 1, also deny the master who bought them. Ultimately, regardless of your interpretation of this phrase, all interpreters can agree, for the most part, that despite the blood of Jesus spilt on the cross, the false teachers denied him, and they will be destroyed as a result. Peter is writing to these these people in this in this land. We see in verse one of chapter one the elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are the people he's writing to, and he's saying, "Hey, listen to me. Your uncle Bob that comes and sits on your porch and drinks iced tea with you. Your uncle Bob that goes to church with you every single Sunday. He's turned his back on the truth." He's invested himself in going his own way and teaching something strange and something heretical and ultimately destructive. Denying the master who bought him. Stay away from Uncle Bob. The third thing he says about them, they bring upon themselves swift destruction. He uses that word a couple of times, destructive heresies. And then they bring destruction on themselves. And we didn't get to verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. He gives that overview in verse 1 of, of the false prophets. He tells us three things those false teachers uh, describes them in three different ways. And he shares two results of their work. What are the results of their work? Many will follow their sensuality. Many. Reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew. 
Wide is the gate. Many, many will, my, wide is the road to destruction. Many will go that way. Narrow is the gate to righteousness, to goodness. Many will follow their sensuality. It shows that just because something works, you can't be pragmatic about it, can't? You can't define success by numbers. Because just because something works in attracting a crowd, it doesn't mean it's of God. In fact, I'm skeptical if they've attracted a crowd really fast. I'm, I'm skeptical at heart, but uh, even about that. We know that God's work will always bear fruit. The devil's work will increase as well. Many will follow their sensuality. When he says sensuality, it may make you think in sexual terms, but it's even more than that. It's unrestrained moral attitudes and behavior. Many will follow their unrestrained immorality in their behavior. For some strange reason, abnormal, aberrant, deviant, false teaching. I got as many synonyms as I could come up with. Abnormal, aberrant, deviant, false teaching seems to attract a crowd. He tells us in the next verse what they were dealing with. I can think of two extremes that we can guard against. What popped into my mind originally this week going through this, you remember the name David Koresh. Branch Davidian, remember that? Sensuality and sex are a major part of that false teaching as well as all other heresy. And people ended up dead. go into the ugly details, but you may remember. But secondly, not as blatantly obvious as that cultic practice. This is where the secret comes in. Those I mentioned last week who, who stray just enough from the truth to deceive clearly. People who may be learning the ways of God and they get onto this new thing. Let me go learn about this new thing this guy is teaching me. Yet not being thoroughly orthodox or even moderately biblical. Friends, they might not even claim to be... We might not even call them false teachers if we listen to them. In many ways, the one who has been called but fails to fulfill that call, fails to fulfill that role in building up the body of Christ and edifying believers, then a sense false teaching as well. Don't teach the whole counsel of God being false to their calling. Listen, we could, we could have many, many, many. We could fill up this place. We could fill up this place, and, 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 and Josh could be, put a neat new big video screen in the gym for overflow. 
Wouldn't that be awesome? No. If we could falsely convince ourselves that that was our mission. I could announce today at the end of the sermon that for the next seven Sundays we're going to bring we're going to preach a seven sermon series on seven tips for an awesome marriage. We advertise it, put a sign out front. We'd have more people than we have today. The third week would be on sex. That would be the biggest crowd. Pastor Greg would preach that message. And after those seven weeks, we'd have a four-week series. Four tips on how to survive with a teenager in your house. Week three would be the same message on sex. The crowd would grow. On and on and on we go. Books of the Bible, they're so boring. What can we accomplish going through books of the Bible? Just slowly move away from Scripture. Watch the crowds grow. Many will follow their sensuality. Throw in some humor, a couple movie clips on the video, and off we go. Add some songs that are louder and faster. You probably have to get a younger worship leader. They're louder and faster. Songs that don't have so many words. Sky's the limit, right? That's how it works. Oh, we know how it works. We could, we could, get, we could fill up this place. Throw in a couple of spontaneous baptisms and the membership just booms. John Cobb came up with a nice little pithy little uh, rhyme to this. If he looks like a rose but smells like a pig, don't be impressed if his church is real big. Many people will profess to be Christians but deny Christ's lordship over their lives. Refusing to live as obedient servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Refusing to follow, obey his word. Following instead the lust of the flesh, the world, the devil. Follow their sensuality, Peter says. Those nominal Christians tragically will be included in the Lord's condemnation of the hypocrites at the day of judgment. We read about it in Matthew 7, 21, 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the first result. Many will follow their sensuality. The second result, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Favorite term for Christianity in the very beginning, the way. The way of truth. 
You see it in Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 19, verse 9. But when some become stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. The way. The way not only provided the goal of life or the goal for life, but a way of living that God designed for each and every one. The way takes you there. Clearly see that there are two ways Peter's describing here. There's one way of faithfulness in the way of the false teachers. The psalmist talked about it in Psalm, the very first psalm, the way of righteousness, the way of the wicked. There are two ways. Talking about here the right way. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. One leads to life. One leads to destruction. Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. Because of them, false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The world mocks the gospel of Jesus Christ because of nominal Christians who do not stand up for what they claim. They've been clearly seen as hypocrites. who most likely have made false professions of faith as well. Listen, we choose the truth. We're sticking with this book. Yet we've come to a place in the world where you can't pronounce these things. You can't, like Peter did, you can't pronounce that those, those false teachers are leading people astray and they'll be destroyed. You can't say that in the world today. can't do that. You can't condemn false preachers. The one who pronounces such judgment, like Peter is doing here, we do from this pulpit, pronounces what, what Peter's saying. We're just simply backward, intolerant, hateful. We're a menace to the society, and we must be stopped. Warning number one, they will try to stop us. That's where we are in our world. We hold true to righteousness in today's society. They will try to stop us. Alistair Begg was quoting another preacher. He didn't mention the name. And I think this is important for us to understand when, you, when you're dealing with your family and declaring truth to your family, when you're dealing with your neighbors who think you're intolerant and you're declaring truth to your neighbor, he says this, 
Do you want people to like you in the immediacy and despise you in eternity? Or do you want them to despise you today and rejoice with you in eternity? That hit me squarely between the eyes. Because I want people to like me, don't you? Not don't you like me, don't you want people to like me? Do you have the courage to be a biblical Christian? We'll see. So we see at least two results to the teaching of the false teachers. Denying the lordship of Christ while claiming to be a believer destructively infects other people and discredits the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The motivation and the method. What's the motivation? In their greed, they will exploit you. Greed. That's the motivation. Peter makes it clear that their motivation is not the love of truth. Their motivation is not the love of people. Their their motivation is not that you learn and grow and serve so that you might live victoriously out there. Their motivation is greed. He doesn't give the source of their greed. Is it money? Is it power? Well, those two are the same thing. Is it sensuality? Sex? Could all go together. It's personal gain. Their motivation is not edification or the welfare or salvation of other people. It's simply personal gain. It's amazing how many of today's, today's false teachers, not even talking about those in Peter's day, today's false teachers present a gospel that has self-gratification at heart. I suspect that since it's all about them, and not the people they serve, then the primary desire they have is to replace Christ in the lives of those people. What's their motivation? What's their method? It's really simple, with false words. It's a great word, false, there. Uh, the, The Greek word is plastos. We get our word plastic from it. Plastos. It literally means molded words. Words that have been fabricated for selfish purposes. Words that may look like glass. Now, this really is. But words that may look like glass, but it's plastic. You can't tell. Think about all the plastic products that you encounter every single day that look like something else. You know that beautiful painting you have on the wall with that frame that looks like just beautiful oak wood? It's plastic. We could go on and on and on with that. False words. Plastic Plastic things are made to look like the real thing. False teachers in their words. And Peter ends that verse after their motivation and their method. 
With a similar thought, he ends verse 1 with, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. From eternity past, God has put in place the destruction of false teachers. It's not idle. It's going to happen. God hasn't forgotten about it. It's in his plan. We see similar thoughts in Jude verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is by nature the God of truth. He will judge liars. He will judge deceivers. False teachers will be judged. The important one is, like we see in, in, in verse 9, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And we'll see in a minute that they, they actually they're being punished while they wait for their final punishment, their final judgment. And then Peter gives us three examples, really to encourage us. This is about us. This is... This is really not about, he's not writing this to false teachers. He's writing this to the church. This is about us. So he writes with some encouraging examples for us of sin and judgment from Scripture. It would have been nice if the Holy Spirit through Peter just said, Hey, God didn't spare fallen angels. He didn't spare the... If God didn't spare the ungodliness of the people in Noah's time, if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, he's not going to spare the false teachers either. He could have gotten that over really quick, but it's not quite that easy. It goes a little deeper than that. Bottom line, as a sovereign and just God will not let wickedness go unpunished. And he gives us these examples that set a precedent. Really, God sets a precedent in the Old Testament on how he will treat the false teachers. What are they? I'll try to get through them quickly. You'd think I could get through them quickly. In the Greek, it's just one long sentence. These five or six verses. Peter says... You think God can't handle the false teachers? Let me just give you a few examples. First, example one. It's like John's case studies Wednesday night. He shared with us from Psalm 107. Example one, verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's verse four. Who are these angels? What's he talking about? Some say just simply they're the angels who followed Satan when he rebelled. That can't be because it says they're in chains. And we know Satan and his demons are are free at this point. They're not chained in gloomy darkness. Who are these demons he's talking about? Better understanding, I think, without going into all the details of Scripture because because all the details of that particular story is not Peter's point. These are the sons of God, we 
read about in Genesis chapter 6. These are the angels who took on some, like some human form, cohabited with women. And it's not a real clear story in Genesis 6. It's further enhanced in a, in a non-canonical book, a, a book called Enoch. We do see that term, sons of God, three other times in the Old Testament, and all three of those times are in Job and related to angels. Jude, verse 6, mentions this. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, presumably heaven, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In either case, regardless of the exact interpretation, we see here Peter's main point that sin followed judgment. Sin is followed by judgment. That's his point. And the hell here, the word he uses, is unique. It's not Hades. It's not the word that Jesus uses for hell most of the time, Gehenna, which is the lake of fire or the, that place of fire. The word he uses, he borrows from Greek mythology, Tartarus. It says, in Tartarus, the angels who sin are committed to chains. Some would say, some of your translations say, in a pit. Because the word for pit and the word for change just has one letter difference. But it's in gloomy darkness. One dictionary, Bible dictionary, says Tartarus, thought of by the Greeks as a subterranean place lower than Hades, where divine punishment was meted out, was so regarded in Jewish apocalyptic literature as well. It was lower than Hades. Tartarus is the deepest, darkest place of punishment. Reserved for human beings and gods and demons. The Greeks believe that. The Jews eventually came to use that term for fallen angels. Define them as the, the lowest hell, the deepest pit, the most terrible place of torture and eternal suffering. And they're going through that even now until the day of judgment. They get their final destruction. Some group. We know from Revelation a, th a third, up to a third of the angels fell. This is some of that group. That are put in chains and Tartars in the darkest place. Eternal chains of gloomy darkness, June 6 says. So if God, he doesn't use these words, but if God didn't spare those angels when they sinned, he's not going to spare those false teachers. Example 2. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, your Bible might say a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That story is in the same chapter in Genesis, in Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6:11 we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And the only... Proper thing 
for that type of wickedness was for God to put it down. Destroy it. Wipe out the entire population. That, that evil and wickedness grieved God so much he found it necessary to destroy every, every man, every woman, save the eight that were on the ark. God's serious about sin. And oh, if the false teacher, wonder if any false teachers have ever taught this passage. Hmm. Be an interesting study. We'd take a quick study to Google it. What about that? If I was a false teacher and knew I was a false teacher, this would scare the bejeebers out of me. But God spared Noah. The only encouragement we have here is that God spared Noah. Herald of righteousness with seven others, his sons, their wives, and his own wife. The Old Testament tells us he's righteousness. It really doesn't say anything. He's a herald of righteousness or a preacher. Jewish writings hold him up as a preacher of moral excellence. The ancient world perished because of their corruption and sin. Spared eight people because they were right with God. The human race was reduced to eight people. And that same flood that would destroy those people was used to spare Noah and his family. This is where we begin to find some comfort. When you're surrounded by ungodliness, everywhere you turn is ungodliness. You realize that God took notice of Noah. One who walked with God. Even not perfect, but walked with God in the midst of a perverse generation. He did not lose sight of the godly. God did not lose sight of the godly. He won't lose sight of you in the middle of all this ungodliness. So if God didn't spare the rest of the world, He's not going to spare those false teachers. Third example, verses 6 through 8, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and parenthetically he says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, it's really good that the Holy Spirit used Peter to put that in there. Because if you call Lot righteous and you know his story, that's a problem. But it's affirmed in Scripture. We see that story in Genesis 19. People of Sodom... Demanded that Lot turn over two angels that had showed up actually to rescue Lot and his wife. They demanded them for sexual reasons. 
the angels had convinced Lot and his wife to leave. And when they left, God rained down burning sulfur on those cities and incinerated everything. Every single human in that area, in those two cities, was cremated. Jude 6 and 7, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He says, making them an example. That's a model. That's a pattern. God sent an unmistakable message to all future generations on how he was going to deal with ungodliness and wickedness. That story was well known by every Jewish family, and the implications were very clear to every Jewish family. God will not tolerate wickedness. Aside from the issue of the false prophets, I thought about this as I was going through this. Many years ago, Billy Graham said, if America didn't turn around, God would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we can hope, and we can pray, and we can witness. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But his patience will run out. He won't tolerate what's going on in this place today. As God saved Noah, he also saved Lot. Ultimately, not his wife, but he saved Lot. He's called righteous. That gives me hope. You know Lot's story? He offered his two uh, daughters to the men of Sodom to have sex with them so they wouldn't take the angels. Great fatherly advice there. And in drunkenness, he committed incest with those daughters. Peter calls him righteous. And say he did righteous things necessarily. He mentions righteousness two more times in the next verse. There was spiritual weakness in Lot. There was immorality in Lot. There was drunkenness in Lot. His heart was in Sodom, but Peter reminds us that he hated the sins of his culture. He sought ways to protect God's angels from harm. He obeyed the Lord by not looking back, as his wife did. It's clear Lot was less than perfect. His sin's very clear to us. Aren't you glad you aren't a Bible character? And for thousands and thousands of years, people being reminded over and over and over again about your sinfulness. Suffered distress over the immorality of the lawless society he lived in. And for that, declared righteous. This is how he slipped down that slippery slope of immorality, though. That's how we got here. We're not sickened by it ourselves, are we? Lot was sickened by the immorality of his age. 
We're not. It becomes commonplace. We become more accustomed to the immorality. You loosen the morals and and, and that, that immorality just continues to increase and snowball down that slippery slope. That's why faithfulness to the Word is so vital. And that's why the teaching of the false teachers is so deadly. There's no foundation for them to stand on. And the church is even scared to preach the truth because they're coming after us. Though as not to offend. That's going to have deadly consequences. Parents are fearful of preaching truth to their, truth to their kids for fear of losing them. The gospel is offensive. And then Peter wraps this up, verses 9 and 10. So if this, he says, if, if uh, Noah's, the world, except for Noah and his family, is destroyed for their ungodliness. If Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities become ashes due to their wickedness. If those angels who rebelled are cast in chains in deep, utter, gloomy darkness, God didn't spare those people. He's not going to spare false teachers. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially... Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Two things. Rescue. Rescue the godly from trials. Trials can mean temptation. Trials can mean testings. It's important that in this passage there, there's the force of verse 1 where we saw who the false teachers were the denunciation of the heretics. But then he summarizes it here at the very beginning of verse 9 with encouragement. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He rescued Noah. He rescued Lot. Judgment fell on everybody else, but he rescued them. should encourage us to remain faithful. Encouragement there to remain faithful, to stand firm. God can deliver the righteous from all the subtle sinfulness of the false teachers. Don't be discouraged. Peter tells his readers, he tells you and me, don't be discouraged. God will see you through. Rescue. Then we see rejection. See how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It's the final judgment that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 10. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. When you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And for those abiding in Christ, John tells us in regarding the judgment, 
1 John 4:17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence and hope for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, are we in this world? The unrighteous are under guard. At least these he mentioned, they're in chains. They're under guard. Those that are free are under guard. God is watching. God is sovereign. Waiting their official sentence to be declared and carried out. What a horrible thing to go through deep, utter, gloomy darkness of punishment while you're waiting for your final punishment. And he emphasizes two categories there in that first verse, verse 10. Two categories of wickedness that makes the certainty of judgment especially true. That's those who indulge a lust of defiling passion, depraved immorality. Wow. We could go on and on, couldn't we? What we're facing today. Depraved immorality. Those he mentions in verses 1 through 3. More clearly, he's going to mention them in the verses that follow. Those he talks about in Romans chapter 1. We don't have time for that now. You go back and read Romans 1. One little extra talk about this unrighteousness. First category, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Second category whom God has reserved punishment, those who despise authority. Not able to live in an ordered society. Not able to submit to church leadership. Not able to submit to God. All of that rebellion places them in the line to receive the judgment on that final day. History's proven, friends, that God never overlooks evil. Peter said that to these people. He tells them about history. Back then, God does not overlook evil. And He doesn't overlook evil today. Punishment is for sure. The false teachers who are stirring up the churches of Peter's day and who stir up churches today will never escape God's attention and God's judgment. A friend of mine who's not a believer... believes that sex is natural to the point that we should just do whatever comes naturally in an animal-like way. He thinks our thinking about that is just purest Victorian ideas about sex, and they're simply passe. They're simply out of date. He's right about one thing. They are out of date for this world. They're not Victorian. That era was a couple hundred years ago. Our moral standards today are a few thousand years old at least. And they won't change because we're standing on these standards. And God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Those standards are what God has provided and what God has commanded for us. 
And I thought about that friend when I thought about that quote from Alistair Begg. Do you want people, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Do you want people to like you in the immediacy and despise you in eternity? Or do you want them to despise you today and rejoice with you in eternity? Stand up, my friend. Stand up. In a moment, we'll sing a closing hymn. During that time, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. I encourage you. If you have questions, you don't need to recommit your life to Christ, want to commit your life to Christ, want to talk to somebody about it, now is the time for you to say yes to Jesus Christ. He's calling you. Died on the cross in your behalf. Run to Him today. You can do that. We just pray you make your way to the back while we sing this last song. They'll be glad to receive you. Father, thank you again for your word, for your truth. Thank you, Lord, that there's hope and grace for those of us who stand for your truth. There may be painful times in this world, but you're not, we, we don't come to you unnoticed. And we pray, Lord, that we might be bold in standing up against the teaching that is not of you, that subtle, secret, false teaching that is leading so many astray. Give us a hunger for your word so that we might be able to discern that teaching immediately. May the church rise, accomplish your purpose in this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.